Good morning, dear Intriguer, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss the big meeting between Erdogan and Putin and the diplomatic drama between Libya and Israel. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? I'm pretty well, as always, Ethan, but we've got a huge week coming up, right? Like, ASEAN uh, meeting is uh, in Jakarta uh, today. I think it opens this morning um, without your president, Mr. Biden. And then we've got uh, the G20 summit uh, this weekend without uh, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. So this is the kind of stuff that I, that I, that I live for. So yep. I'm excited. Well, Labor Day is in the rear view. Neither of us are allowed to wear white anymore. And Foreign leaders aren't allowed to go on nearly as many vacations. They're they're back to work just like we are. Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, this is kind of shocking. We're actually in the eighth month of this show. Hard to believe, but it's true. Very, very sad Wild. the way the time has flown. Uh, but in that time, which which names do you think we've said the most? That's a that's a great question. I don't know. Do you have do you have data on that? No, do I have data? Are you kidding me? No, I'm a I'm a <laughs> I'm a gut guy. I'm going on gut instinct here. <laughs> Liberal arts education. Yeah, you ought to know me better than that by now. <laughs> uh, well, I think between the protests earlier this year uh, and everything that happened in Francophone Africa, we've certainly talked a lot about mm-hmm. President Macron of France. Just how he likes it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> President Zelensky's got to be up on that list as, along with uh, President Biden. Um, and I would throw probably Turkish President Erdogan into the mix as well. Um and obviously Putin. So I, I, that, those are my guesses. I haven't. I'll give you five. Yeah. Well, that, that's perfect. I think that's spot on. I would maybe add Benjamin Netanyahu in the mix too. But I think we'll come back to him later. Yeah. Fair. John, on, on those those last two, you were spot on. Uh, those were the names I was looking for because they actually met yesterday, Monday, in the Russian resort town of Sochi. That is an elaborate segue there, but I, I now I see where you were going. Um, yes, <laughs> so yeah, this this is this is the story exactly that that uh, Putin visited uh, Putin and Erdogan visited Sochi, which which I think is most famous for hosting the Winter Olympics um, a few years ago. Uh, and look, honestly, it's no surprise um, that we've said both of their names so often. Putin for obvious reasons, and President Erdogan because uh, not only um, was he involved in what ended up not being a particularly close election, although we were. We were wondering whether it would be, um, but he's also become sort of a key intermediary between Putin, between Russia and the West. Um, you know, I've been saying for a while to anyone who'll listen that uh, Turkey's role in the region um, and in the world is, I think, one of the most important and fascinating global stories right now. Um, it's a little bit overlooked. Turkey's a NATO member, of course, um, and it's provided millions of dollars of lethal aid to Ukraine. Um, and it Erdogan, I think, even said that he supported Ukraine's NATO bid um, back in July. Uh, but Turkey, on the other hand, probably more than any other NATO ally, I'd argue, um, has maintained open channels of communications with Moscow. Um, it's been able to do that by declining to join the sort of broader sanctions regimes against Moscow. And, and it's been a pretty big proponent of a negotiated settlement to the war, which has been, as we as we discussed on our Diplopod Club over the weekend, um, uh, kind of taboo in the Western media. Um, so, you know, working with Turkey and Erdogan has been a big challenge for policymakers, Western policymakers and analysts, because I suspect that uh, any resolution to this war, whatever it is, will, will potentially run through Ankara. Right. So, so what was on the agenda in Sochi yesterday? 
Well, the big thing to talk about was the Black Sea grain deal. We've talked about it a few times, um, and, and Erdogan actually helped negotiate it uh, in July last year when it when it came about. Um, the deal obviously allows Ukraine to continue shipping food from ports like Odessa on the Black Sea through Turkey's Bosphorus Straits there in Istanbul uh, and off into the wider world, um, where many people depend on Ukrainian grain to survive. Um, but in July this year, so you know, a month and a half ago, Putin declined to extend the deal, um, citing the fact that Western countries had maintained sanctions against Russian food products. And since then, naval ships, Russian naval ships have been kind of menacing the, the merchant vessels um, in the Black Sea. Uh, I think a couple of instances made the news there. Um, so I think with this meeting in Sochi, Erdogan's top priority was kind of trying to convince or cajole Putin back into the deal because, uh, you know, I I think if not to get back, get him back in the deal, even to better understand his positions, because I think it's kind of, it, it serves everyone's purposes to get back to the deal. Um, interestingly, Erdogan called on the Western partners, his Turkey's Western partners, to provide that sanctions relief that Putin's after um, to get Russia back to the deal. Um, though, you know, whether the West is interested in that is a, is a different question. I think it's fair to say about the end of the talks yesterday, um, there wasn't any kind of amazing breakthrough uh, between the two sides. Yeah. How much clout Erdogan has in in major Western capitals to convince them to provide sanctions relief is a is a different question. But but right. clearly Erdogan is staking out a position somewhere in the middle. This Goldilocks zone, not too close to Putin, not too close to NATO. Is there any mm -hmm. reason to think he may have to or will ever pick a side here? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think it's one that's driven by our kind of need to sort of see everything in black and white, pick a side, man, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. I mean, in the lead up to Erdogan's re-election in May, he was pretty fond of criticizing the West, uh, you know, into sort of curry favor, I suppose, with Turkey's more nationalist leaning voters. Um, and obviously he withheld Sweden's uh, NATO bid as well um, and also accused leaders of like Joe Biden, your very own Joe Biden of interfering in Turkey's election. Um, so he, 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 well, he hasn't been scared to criticize the West, but you know, we've also seen some signals now, I think that uh, Erdogan might be somewhat tiring of Putin as well um, and that he might be throwing his hat in with the, the NATO side of things. I said, I said earlier that back in July, Erdogan supported NATO membership, um, but he also made Putin furious that week by releasing five Ukrainian commanders, military commanders that Turkey had promised um, it would keep until the end of the war. Um, and then if we backtrack even further, if you'll allow me, uh, Erdogan obviously... Um, well, he made he made waves in front of the international press. I would say because he made Putin kind of wait awkwardly in front of cameras during a during a uh, like a photo op. Um, and, oh, that's and, Putin's know, thing, right? Exactly. I was going to say that's uh, making Putin's people wait is Putin's trick. He, he normally makes people wait for like an hour or two. Um, I think Erdogan made made Putin wait for like under a minute. So, you know, in the in the rather sad <laughs> little world of high level meetings, this this stuff you know, seems to matter to folks like Putin and Erdogan. Um, but no, I, I think contrary to some analysts, I, I don't think these events signal Erdogan is picking the West, um, not by any means. I don't think he's picking Russia either, to be clear. Um, we've talked before about a more multipolar world, um, the idea that regionally powerful countries will use their position to secure what's in their own best interests um, rather than picking sides. And, you know, if we know one thing about Erdogan, he's a master politician, a master of leverage. Uh, in all of these instances, he's trying to show both Putin and the West at the same time that his loyalties are not permanent and that he needs to be constantly won over, which in turn, maximizes his and Turkey's power, right? 
Well, so so is Erdogan getting tired of Putin then? I mean, could Putin be miscalculating here by dragging his feet on, you know, renewing the grain deal? Uh, well, there's two separate questions there. I think Erdogan, if he's human, is probably pretty tired of dealing with Vladimir Putin. <laughs> but to your <laughs> second question, um, do you think Putin, do I think Putin's miscalculating? Honestly, I know that I know that it's, it's kind of trendy to say yes, he is, but honestly, probably not. Um, I, I, you're reading the still very fresh reports on, on that meeting yesterday in, in Sochi. I'm actually kind of optimistic that there will be a deal soon. Um, you know, I've said a few times I think that incentives are on all sides um, are to find a deal here. So perhaps I'm being a bit like you know trying to trying to will my prediction into into existence. But um, you know, Putin has said he will return to the deal if the West helps or agrees to let Russia export food and fertilizer, which is something that Russia wants to do. Um, and some of the readouts I was reading, language on both sides seemed kind of open to that. I think the West is now realizing or acknowledging that Ukraine and the rest of the world needs fertilizer, needs food. Um, and yes, that would provide Russia some foreign income. But I think that, you know, that the reality is that a deal has to be done somehow. Um, so again, watch this space. I, I think in the nearest future, we might see a deal, which I actually think would be a good thing in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things. Today's episode is sponsored by Nice News. I'm really excited about this one because at, at International Intrigue, we know that the news isn't always natural disasters, war, and geopolitics. That's why we love Nice News. It's an email digest that filters through hundreds of sources each day to send you the most uplifting, relevant, and entertaining news stories. It's exactly what we all need. So check out the link in the show notes to start re-envisioning your relationship to the news. All right, welcome back. And and what's that? That's me welcoming folks back this time, Ethan, because uh, you're going to take the lead on this one, right? Yeah, I mean, not exactly how I would have done it. I probably would have said something like, all right, welcome back. But you sounded okay there, John. I and, it, and it's upsetting that your voice is so richly baritoned and more and more uh, radio friendly than mine. But we, we're working with what we have here. Um, but okay, let's get to the issue. And he, he, here at Intrigue, I think we love to talk about throwing diplomatic shade uh, wherever it's being thrown. Yep. Um, and we've gotten a lot of shade the last few weeks in one of the sunniest places on earth. So that's that's my uh, that's my little introduction there. I love that. That's really good. So yeah, we, John, you're exactly right. We, we sure have. Uh, the story here is that in in mid-August, uh, Israel's foreign minister, Eli Cohen, announced that he had a closed-door meeting in Rome the week prior, around August 10th, with Libya's foreign minister, Najla Mangouche. When this story broke in Libya, and remember, Libya is currently divided between the government we're talking about today, which is based in Tripoli, and, and a rival government, which is based in the eastern part of the country. When this story broke... Crowds of people flooded the streets in in Tripoli to you know burn Israeli flags. Yeah, uh, they even stormed the gates of the foreign ministry. They were blocked by guards before they could get inside the building. But they chanted threats against Mangouche too, and she was forced to actually flee to Turkey uh, for her own safety. Right now, we we still don't know exactly where she is. But it it also prompted the Tripoli-based Prime Minister Abdul Hamid Debeba to to fire Mangouche. And to hold a press conference where he not only expressed his support for the Palestinian cause, but he also promised to never normalize relations with Israel. 
Yeah, this is such a fascinating story. Is it a question of a foreign minister gone rogue or a uh, or a, a government that didn't predict this kind of backlash? Yeah. Um, but okay, let's let's take it step step one. Why why did Mangush um, agree to meet with Cohen in the first place? That's the question. Well, you asked two great questions there. We'll we'll start with the latter question. That but that's that's a great question. I mean, Libya passed a law in 1957 forbidding the country from ever recognizing Israel. And you know we'll we'll all remember uh, dictator Muammar Gaddafi for forty years. He maintained a let's just say stridently anti-Israel stance. And mm. you know you won't be surprised that when a leader takes on a position over time, it enters the body politic and seeps down into the populace. So you know those positions have impacted public perception. You know today just seven percent of Libyans said any Arab states, let alone their own should normalize ties with Israel. So knowing all of this, John, you probably wouldn't think that normalization was even on the table. But according to several press reports, which you know cite conversations with top officials in the Libyan government, I saw one, you know, these aren't these aren't random press reports that I found. One was from the AP. Um, that mm. was exactly what Cohen and Mongoosh were there to discuss. Uh, and there was even a bombshell story uh, published in a, a Lebanese newspaper called Al-Akbar that said Dabeba, the prime minister, met with the head of Israel's spy agency, the Mossad, to discuss normalization last year. Okay, so they, there I have my answer a little bit that she probably didn't go rogue, that it was just that they are trying to cover their tracks. Um, okay, so given everything you said then about Libyan public opinion, and I actually didn't know how deep that kind of anti-Israel sentiment necessarily ran in Libya. Um, so why would Dabeba be pursuing those closer ties with Israel if, if it's such a, a contentious issue? Dabeba insists that, that Mangush was acting on her own initiative uh, and that she made a terrible error of judgment and needed to be fired for it. But if the reports are true, and, and you know we never know, my best guess is that it has something to do with Libya's ongoing internal conflict. You know, There's not as much fighting between the Eastern and Western governments as there once was, but they are still vying for control of the entire country. And that means, you know, both right. leaders are looking for a leg up. If I'm Debeba, I'm looking at the normalization agreements that the UAE signed, for instance, through the Abraham Accords, where they got access to American and Israeli military hardware. And they've also been allowed to, to you know, access Israel's tech sector. That might be too good to turn down if, if you're in a war, you know, whatever you want mm -hmm. to say about Israel, they they know how to fight a war. So that was probably what Debeba was going for. It, it may have backfired in this instance, though. Yeah, that is a that is a fairly large carrot, isn't it? Um, in that part of the world. Yeah. Um. Okay. So what does this, I think, tell us about Israel's status in the rest of the Arab world? I mean, as you said, the Abraham Accords they, they promised to fundamentally change the way the whole yeah. region, Arab leaders um, and citizens thought about Israel. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I guess that that's a good question there is that leaders and citizens aren't necessarily the same thing. So is this, is, is the Abraham Accord mission kind of failing maybe? By that measure, perhaps. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that the, the Abraham Accords as a whole are failing. They are, they are pretty much brand new. So it's, it's too early to, to, you know, write its eulogy one way or another. 
But from what from Israel's perspective, all this fence sitting, Ethan, take a take a side. Oh, I'm kidding. That's that you sound <laughs> you sound just like me. That's exactly that's exactly what I'm constantly exactly. asking. I'm you doing here. my best, e- <laughs> my Ethan impression. Exactly. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Well, from from Israel's perspective, I'd say one really encouraging sign vis a vis the Abraham Accords is that Saudi Arabia seems to be inching ever so closer yeah. to, to normalization. Um, if that ever happens, we'll probably de- dedicate an entire two to three shows to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, Ellie Cohen, the, the foreign minister, was actually in Bahrain yesterday where he met with the country's crown prince. Uh, they were one of the Abraham Accords' original signatories. But, I mean, I mean, to your question, John, I don't think public opinion in Arab states has shifted nearly as much as Israel has hoped. I mean, there's public opinion pulling from from Morocco, which has cemented some fairly close ties with Israel that shows that citizenry are not on board, um, you know, even if Arab leaders are. Uh, so that's why so much of this diplomacy, including the meeting between Cohen and Mangouche, has to be done in total secrecy, you know, lest citizens find out about these negotiations and rise up and force ministers to flee their countries. I think what other Arab leaders you know, countries that might consider joining the Abraham Accords will find so concerning is that it was Cohen himself that revealed this rendezvous with Mongoosh. So, mm. you know, how quick are they going to be to take meetings with Cohen the next time he calls? Uh, and with that, John, that's all I've got left. So dismiss me, please. Well, I, before I do, I was going to say that's the definition of being hung out to dry. But <laughs> I, it, I think one last interesting thing to note about all this um, when, when you kind of raise this story with me is that I think prior to the Arab Spring, we may not even be having this conversation because the idea that citizenry and Arab leaders are a potentially different uh, thing that they wouldn't agree with their leaders or they wouldn't be forced to go along with their leaders is a fairly new dynamic. So there's a a lot of interesting things to here to watch. And I I trust that you will keep us informed over the coming weeks. You got it. (laughs) Thanks, Ethan. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz suffered a small injury while jogging over the weekend. Nothing to worry about. But he showed up to work on Monday with a pretty spiffy new look. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see what it was. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.